I want us to begin this morning by turning to Colossians for a moment. We've been in this book before. We're going to get to Revelation here shortly, but we've been here in Colossians before. We, in fact, spent months studying this when I first arrived here in ministry. And I think it's a good place for us to start this morning um, because of Paul's words to the believers in Colossae. Of course, the Apostle Paul is thankful for this little church, the church that he had planted. They have a strong faith, it says in chapter 1. This faith that they have in Jesus Christ continually shows itself in uh, how they love one another. The world is a watching world, and these new believers in Christ have this faith which produces a, a love for one another, and they were living that way because they had hope. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, I'm thanking God, verse 3, because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It wasn't a hope like the world's kind of hope. It it wasn't a wishful thinking kind of hope. It wasn't that they were trying to convince themselves of something better that really wasn't better at all, some kind of mind over matter exercise, if you will. No, this is real hope. In fact, verse 5 of chapter 1 says it's a hope of heaven uh, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. This is a hope that is born from the gospel. This is gospel hope. Why does this gospel offer, why does this gospel bring hope? Because, Paul says in verses 13 and 14, because He, that is Jesus Christ, delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. This is such a great hope, and this gospel brings hope because it is a hope of transference. It is a hope that has transferred us into the kingdom of Christ, out of a kingdom of lostness, a kingdom of darkness, a a deliverance that has brought to us complete redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is a great hope. And it is a hope that overrides any difficulty and any struggle. Every Christian has struggles because of their faith. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to difficulty. He wrote about it often. He was reminded of it often just by his very life. Difficulty that brought great physical and even uh, more so emotional pain. But Paul never lost hope. Paul was... One who was cast down, as he says to the Corinthian church, but never crushed. He wanted the believers in Colossae to have that same kind of energy, that same kind of attitude, that same kind of thinking. And they could and they would if they remembered who Christ was. 
They never forgot the one in whom they have their hope. If they never lost the picture and the reality of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says in chapter 1, this is an incomparable Christ. This is one who isn't like any other. This is God himself. This is the one in whom the very image of God, the one in whom the invisible God, he is the firstborn of all creation, he said. It's the one whom in which we have hope is the one who created all things, the one in whom has created us. And so Paul gets to chapter 3 in Colossians, and he says to them these things based upon that reality. Based upon the hope that you have in Christ, then make that doctrine, make that teaching about Christ, that teaching of hope, make it a reality in your practice. And he says this in Verses 1 to 4, if then you have been raised up with Christ. If, since, since you are a Christian, since you have been raised up with Christ, since you are alive in Christ, then keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, where He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? Because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, when He's revealed, when He's fully manifested in glory, and He comes to us, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Paul says to these Colossian believers, listen, the doctrine of hope, which is at the very heart of the gospel, This doctrine of hope has practical implications for your life right now, especially in the midst of difficulty, especially in the midst of this thing called life. When your entire being is oriented on Christ, there are practical implications for the here and now. Notice what he says. Keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. Seek those things which are Christ-honoring. Seek those things which are like Christ. Seek those things which, which are uh, of God. Keep seeking those things. Since you are a Christian, since you are secure in Christ, seek the things of Christ in your life. Set your mind, he says, on the things above. Set your mind that's equal to every thought. Have your mind settled. Have it completely rested. Set your mind, the, the way you think, the, the, the way you process information, the way you take in what the world says, the information that you follow, the information that you act upon, the information that you use to make decisions. All of that is to be the things of Christ and not the things of the world, he said. You see, the implication here from Paul is this, when our minds and when our pursuits are on the things exhorted here, on the things of Christ, on the things above, not on the things of this earth, then our hope will be exuberant. But when our things, when our mind and our pursuits are set on the things of this earth, then our hope is diminished. And when our hope is diminished, we don't long for heaven. You see, Paul goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, 
you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Do you ever think about that for you have died? What's it like to be dead? Do you ever think about that? Every one of us here have been to a funeral, I'm sure. The person who has died isn't there. The things of this earth have no effect on them. Paul says, for you have died. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, set your mind on those things. Set your mind on the things of Christ. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things of Christ. Why? Because you are to live as if you're dead. Remember who you are in Christ. You're dead to this world. And he says, and since you're dead to this world, this earth, the things below, he says, keep what? Keep seeking when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. In other words, anticipate the glory that is to come of being with Christ in glory. You know what he's saying? Look forward to heaven. Look forward to heaven. Live today in the anticipation of your life in heaven. So here's what I believe. I think the reason that so many professing Christians today have such a hard time is because far too often our anticipation and our life's drive and our thinking and our mindset is for the here and the now. We, we, we really say we love Jesus. We, we say we're excited about glory and yet we don't want to leave the here and now. We, we want to be in the world more and more and more. We want to extend our time here in the world rather than the glory of heaven. But heaven should be our greatest hope. Heaven should be our greatest hope. Why? Because it is the home of our Savior. And since we know Him by faith, it is our true home. Paul says we're to long for it. We're to anticipate it. We are to desire it more than the world itself. And only the Christian has the hope of glory. No one else. And in heaven, everything will be new. What makes heaven so heavenly is Christ. I've asked this question before of people. Would you still believe in Christ if there was no heaven? People say all the time, I just want to go to heaven. Why do you want to go to heaven? Oftentimes you'll say, well, I want to see my relatives, my friends, those who have gone before me. And while that will certainly be part of our heaven experience, if they know Jesus Christ, the greatest thing about heaven is Christ. Without Christ, there is no heaven. It's just another hell. So with that in mind, I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, of course, you know, we've been studying through the book of Revelation And now we have reached Revelation chapter 21. Jesus said in John chapter 14 to his disciples, Do not be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. The Apostle Paul said to the Colossian believers, Anticipate heaven's glory. Look forward to it. And in Revelation 21, we have come to that place. Immediately following the great white throne judgment that we saw, We are now introduced to the glories of heaven. And if we could sum it up with just one word, we might 
use the word new. New. Everything is new. Everything is changed. In Revelation chapter 21, for the eighth and ninth time now since Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, John says, I saw. I saw. And what he sees concerning our future dwelling place is all new and it is eternal. It isn't temporary like this place. It is eternal. You may remember in our study last time that I pointed out to us that when the current heaven and earth fled away, time, also being part of the creation of God, passed or ceased to exist. And so now we, in the chronology of the flow of our study, we are now entering into what theologians call and describe as the eternal state. This is the eternal state. The tribulation is over. The millennial kingdom has passed. The thousand years have gone. And now we enter into the eternal state. The judgments of God are now in the proverbial record books. Now we see a new era. And it's all new. This is where the Christian will spend the rest of their lives. This is where you and I will spend the majority of our very existence. If you're not excited about that, then you need to understand sin and hell a little more. If you're not excited about what we will see over the next several weeks, then you don't understand your own depth of sin and you don't understand the temporary nature of this world and the reality of where it's going. We need to maybe even go back to Revelation chapter 20 and see the judgment of God upon those who reject it. Because from here on out, this is all exciting news for us. This is our future home. And so what we have here in the glorious picture here is what we can anticipate in the longest part of our existence. The life we live here, the physical life on this earth as we know it from day to day is a temporal reality and in comparison to our life to come it is the shortest part some of us live some hundred plus years but that will be a drop in the bucket compared to eternity james chapter 4 verse 14 says life is but a vapor life is a vapor it's here today gone tomorrow but our life in heaven is forever, and it's all new. I want to read for us verses 1 to 8 as we begin our time this morning and just kind of crack the surface of what we find here. Follow along as I read, as John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. 
There shall no longer be mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. This is an incredible scene. It's it's emblazoned upon the mind of John as he looks at all this. And and as we go through this, I, I just want to highlight for us as we walk through this four overall features, four overall features concerning heaven that I, I hope, I pray, will be a, a cause of us to hope for it all the more. For us to do what Paul exhorted the Colossian believers to do, and that is to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. So let's just look at these, or begin today to look at these four features. First, this feature, heaven is a completely new creation. Heaven is a completely new creation. It's obvious in verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. If you have ever wondered uh, where you are going to live in the final future, after this earth is gone, you don't need to wonder anymore. It will not be on this earth. Don't let that confuse you. Don't let some liberal theologian come along and confuse you with that idea. It will be on a new heaven and a new earth. You say, why do you say that? Because the word new here is not the normal word for new. It is the word kainos. It means totally new in every character. Completely and utterly new. In other words, it's not only new in time, but it is completely different from all that it was before. This is a new heaven and a new earth. You say, why is this necessary? Because, look at it, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Why is it necessary for God to create a new and new earth and a new heaven. The reason is because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. You see, the language here used by God as John writes it down for us to even read, the language here doesn't allow for us to think that this is the current earth, that it is the current earth that just has some kind of massive makeover. The language doesn't allow for that. This is no renovation of the old. This is not this old earth day. This isn't like the show this old house and they come in and make it anew. That's not what this is. God isn't 
regenerating, rejuvenating, renewing, or renovating this earth. This is a completely new earth in a completely new, in every way, creation. You say, why do you say that? Because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Passed away. Passed away is a very interesting word in the original language. It's used some 31 times in the New Testament. And it's interesting as you go through all those verses, every single time, it is always, it always carries the meaning, every single one of those times, that there is some action that takes place upon a thing or on a person in some way that completely removes them away from the sight of the observer. Every time you see that word in the, in the New Testament, it's always this complete removal, completely out of sight of whatever it is from the sight of the one God or the ones there. So it's completely out of the sight. It is completely gone. I'll just show you a few of these. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. In case you're wondering how I get there so fast, I have them all in my notes. Just so you know that. Matthew 5.18, For truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He doesn't simply mean until the earth is rejuvenated, until the earth is renovated. He's not saying that. He says, listen, heaven and earth, not, not, the, not one point of what I've said will, will not, not come to pass until that happens, until it goes out of existence. Matthew 24, verse 34 and 35. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away, will not go out of existence until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will go off the scene, but my words will not go off the scene. That's what he's saying there. The idea is they're completely out of the eyeballs of the existence of those who are observing it. Matthew 26, verse 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed Jesus, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane. says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup just be renovated a little bit. Let it be changed a little bit. Let this cup change in its way. No, that's not what he's saying. He says, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, Matthew 26, verse 42. Again, for a second time, he went and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I your will be done. In other words, he's not saying, look, just change it a little bit. No, he's saying, look, I don't even want to go through this. But if that can't happen, then so be it, your will be done. Of course, each gospel carries those same words in the account of Jesus in the garden. Luke chapter 11, verse 42, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and even herb, and yet neglect justice and the love of God. The word neglect there is this word for pass away. You let pass by you. You don't even entertain it. You don't do it at all. It isn't even in your consciousness, the reality of justice and the love of God. You do all these things on the outside. You tithe. You do all this stuff. But you neglect. You pass by completely 
justice, and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting others. So you see this this terminology of passing away uh, carries with it this idea and everywhere we can go. We could go through every single one of the verses. They go all the way into Acts and 2 Corinthians and James chapter 1. The rich man in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. The sun comes, scorches the grass, the grass goes, it passes away, it's gone, it's out of existence, it's died, dead. Just like the rich man, that will happen to him. Out of the way, no longer around, he's not just rejuvenated, he's gone. It's not a renovation, it's a goneness. And of course, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, Notice it says, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, there shall be no longer death, there shall no longer mourning, crying, pain. The first things have passed away. Completely new. Completely new. So the creation is all new. And notice, notice in verse 1 that God only gives us one physical feature about this new earth. And yet it's a major feature. And for us... On the earth today, it has a major impact. Notice what he says. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer sea. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. But as beautiful as the oceans are, the new earth will not have it. I love the ocean. I love the to see the sea, I love to see the ocean, I, I love all the things about the ocean, but the new heaven will not no longer have, or the new earth will not have any sea, you think, boy, the sea is so beautiful, yeah, so think about what that must mean the new earth will be like. If the old cursed earth has so much beauty in the cursed reality of the earth, how much more beautiful will the new earth be even without sea? You say, why? Why why would God not have sea? Well, he doesn't really tell us here, but we can, I think, give some educated speculation. And maybe it's this, probably because life on this earth is so connected and dependent upon water. In other words, without the hydrological cycle by which water is evaporated from the oceans and taken up into the midheaven and then taken over land, carried by the clouds, dropped on the land so it provides rain on both the just and the unjust. And by that, all life is sustained. Without it, we would die. Without water, you and I do not exist. In fact, your body is mostly water. So to say the least, water plays a major role in the ecology and the physiology of all life on earth. You remember our understanding of the creation in Genesis chapter 1. It tells us that God created this earth in the first creation. And on the second day, God separated the waters above from the waters below. And then in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 1, he tells us, that on the third day, God separated the, the land from the water that was below. So 
He separates the, the water in the heavens from the water in, um, below, and, and it's on the earth, and then he separates the land from the water that's on the earth. So, so it would seem, at least at that time, if we were just making simple, logical deductions, because he separates the light from the dark, that you would, you would think that at least at that time, there's no less than 50% of the earth covered with water at the creation. But then the great flood of the earth happens. The waters that were above come down to the earth. The great waters that are beneath, the fountains of the deep burst open and the waters flood out and the earth is covered until the day that God causes the water to recede. And once the waters recede, 75% of the earth's surface is covered. And all of that water, all of the oceans around the earth are a clear indication to us that this earth is judged. It is a judged earth. It has been judged by God by the great flood. But in the new earth, here's the beauty of it. In the new earth, it, it seems at least from what God is showing John and what we can deduce here, it seems that God is showing us that all the marks of judgment are gone. All the marks of judgment won't be a part of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no water on the earth. We know that can't be true. Look over in Genesis or in Revelation chapter 22. Because he sees heaven, he's seeing this new earth. And, and he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's in the middle of the street. And on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there's no longer, there shall be no longer any, notice, curse. Don't you love that? So think about it. At our present time, the sea is essential for life. It is essential to sustain life here and now. And yet it reminds us of the curse of God. As beautiful as the oceans are, as beautiful as it is to stand on the sea and look out and watch the sun uh, out there reflecting on the water, as beautiful as that is, it's still a reminder of the curse of God. But with the new heaven and the new earth, God will create an ecology that is radically different from that which we now have. In fact, there will be trees along the river that produce 12 kinds of fruit. And in each month, apparently, there will be a 12-month calendar because each month these trees produce a different kind of fruit. That's going to be phenomenal. I love fruit. To be able to eat from the trees each month a different kind of fruit, that's going to be phenomenal. So Revelation 21, in verse 1, all creation is new. There is a new creation. A new creation. And by the way, when it says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, don't think that's the heaven where God currently exists. There are three heavens. Remember, Paul said he went to the third heaven. He went to the place where God dwells, but there's... There's two heavens between that. There's the heaven that's just in, above the earth where the airplanes and the birds fly. And then there's a heaven above that where the satellites and the planets and the stars and anything else man throws off the earth that gets up into there flies. That's, that's the heaven above that. Some call that the stratospheric heaven. 
We live where there's an atmospheric heaven. Above, above all of that is, is God's heaven. So when it says he creates a, a new heaven and a new earth, he, he's creating the, the heaven that's above us in the sense of the atmospheric part and the stratospheric part. It's all new. The galaxies that we know it will be passed away. The heavens and the earth are gone. There's a new creation. And then he says, secondly, there's a second feature here. Second feature. It says not only is there a new creation, but there is a new capital. There's a new capital. Notice verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So, with the new heaven and the new earth having been created by God, we get another feature about our permanent home. And the feature is this, that a, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Remember Jesus Christ in John chapter 14, I said it earlier, said, I go to prepare a place for you. Listen, this is that place. This is that place. We are going to get a further description of this place beginning in verse 10. There's no way we're getting to that today. Obviously, you understand that. But here in verse 2, we, we get the name and we get the simple description of it. This city has been made ready to look like a bride adorned for her husband. That's the imagery. It's a new city, it is a holy city, it is a new Jerusalem that's coming from God out of heaven and it is adorned as if a bride being ready for her husband. This is beautiful imagery. I love how God accommodates our simple thinking with the words that he uses in order to describe what is so glorious it can barely be described at all. He just uses this simple metaphor of a wedding. We've all been to them. We've all been to weddings. We've all seen brides. We all know the beauty of a bride when she walks into the room on that day. There's a reason why the congregation at a wedding stands in honor to the beauty and wonder and majesty of a, of a bride coming in adorned for her husband. She is adorned in all the splendor that, that goes with, with that of a bride. The white purity. She is pure. She is ready to be joined with her groom. And that's the picture that God gives us here. This is the city for which it is said of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10. He looked for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was looking to the new Jerusalem. He was waiting for that. It's the same for every true saint. Everyone who who has lost home, everyone who has lost country for the sake of their faith in Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16 says, He, that is God, has prepared for them a city. This is that city. That same assurance is given to us. The Christians of this day. Just listen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. We, we, we went through this book as well, didn't we? 
Here's what it says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, when we come to Christ, we, we in essence, in the grand scheme and picture of it all, come to that because He is the groom. We've come to the heavenly city. We may be, as the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter, aliens and strangers here on this earth. But the new Jerusalem is our permanent home, and there we are citizens. You're a citizen of the king. And you know how he knows his citizens? Because they have his name engraved upon their head. He knows you by name. He knows you by name. And so this city is the answer to all the promises of both the Old and the New Testament. This is the answer. It is the city that God intended us to live and how we were created to live. So John sees the capital city, this new Jerusalem, and it is adorned as a bride because it contains all of the redeemed, all of those of all the ages who have believed in Jesus Christ, who are ultimately the bride that the Father has sought to give His Son. We are that love gift from the Father to the Son, and the Son brings that love gift that He is now joined with to the Father so that all may give glory to the Father. By the way, the historic Jerusalem, remember? The old historic Jerusalem back in chapter 11, verse 8 of Revelation. Remember what it was called? It wasn't called the holy city. It was called Sodom and Egypt. Why? Because it was sinfully polluted. It was wicked. That city had become a wicked place. And even in the millennial kingdom, even with Christ ruling, Jerusalem didn't reach this level of perfection. Surely Christ was perfect. Surely righteousness was reigning. Surely Christ ruled the day for that thousand years here on earth from this earth, from that Jerusalem. And when He ruled, it was righteous in that sense. But it never was in this level of perfection. Even that Jerusalem was attacked by satanic rebellion in the end. Satan was freed and deceived them, deceived those who came against Christ. This one is perfect. This is one in which sin will never affect. So this is a completely new Jerusalem. I think that's why John can say this is a holy city. This is a completely set apart city. It is holy. It is a holy city for a holy people. Completely set apart, completely perfect, completely new, from heaven, from God. So we we get this glimpse of heaven through the eyes of John. He, he just bursts on the scene with this news and we see the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth and this new capital city. This is paradise regained, folks. This is... Totally new as if the Garden of Eden in which the fall happened. This is as if the fall never happened. What a great blessing God has planned for his children. Think about it for a moment. In the fall, when sin entered in, when sin came, man was was stripped of all God had intended for him. 
Man was stripped of all that. It was the purpose of God that dominion over the great world that God had created, right? Here, Adam, you, you exercised dominion over all of this, and man sinned, and sin came in, and sin cursed the earth, and sin damned mankind to die. Now, since the fall throughout all the ages of history by the sweat of man's brow in a world of death, mankind day after day after day labors and lives life until he dies and he goes into the very ground from which he was created. This is a sin-cursed earth. But the beauty of it is, as far as sin has reached, as far and as deep as sin has gone, the grace of God has reached. And the grace of God has gone. And man, by faith, can be restored by God to his honored place. To his privileged place. Us, one who is a son of God. Whatever sin has touched in creation, God will redeem. Except for those who reject him. Whenever a man entrusts himself to God by faith in Jesus Christ, God also redeems him. The Bible tells us the earth waits for that day. This sin-cursed earth waits for the day of the redemption of man. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and following. Here's what he says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Because the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You see, all creation waits. It waits and longs for this very day, this day of the new creation, this day when the new heaven and new earth will be created and all those who dwell there are righteous and sin doesn't affect it and sin has no effect upon the creation of God and all earth waits for that glorious day. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would tell the Colossian believers, listen, seek those things above. Set your mind on those things above. Continue to anticipate that day when Christ is revealed and this glory will be revealed and you'll be like Christ in glory forever. Seek that day. That's what will keep you from the mayhem of the fallenness of this earth. Paul's saying, listen, the thing you need to seek most is Christ. Seek Christ. Christ is what makes heaven so heavenly. See, if the redeemed, if, if redemption, folks, if God's redemption does not go as far as the curse of sin has gone, if redemption doesn't go as far as the depth of sin and as far as sin has gone to curse all things, then God has lied. And not only has God lied about redemption, but God is utterly a failure in all of His promises. 
God's redemption and God's grace. And all that Christ accomplished overcame all the curse of sin. And we know, we know that redemption will win the day. We know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we know that there will be a new city where all the redeemed will dwell. I tell some of the false religions that come by from time to time to our houses. One of them says, oh, we want to inherit the earth. I say, you can have it. You can have it. And I promptly turn to first or second Peter chapter 3 and I read to them what God's going to do with it. I said, you really want to stay there? Because that's what God's going to do with it. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. I don't want this earth. I don't want to be here. I want to be where Christ will be forever and ever and ever. Best part, you know what the best part's going to be? Remember I said there's four features. I'll just tell you the third one. I'll just mention it to you and then we'll pray. The best part is this. There's going to be a new communion with Christ. There's going to be a new communion with Christ. Notice what he says in verse 3. We'll just read it. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is, that's a state of being, is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be among them. (laughs) This is an entirely new communion. And we'll look at it next time. It's so amazing. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning. Our time together seems to go so fast. And yet, Lord, so rich. What a joy and a blessing it is to our soul to know what great plans you have for those who love you, those who have been called according to your name, those who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith. We're so thankful that you have given us that hope and that our hope is not a a wishful thought, but it is a, a true reality as solid as the ground we're standing on now. So, Lord, we rejoice. We ask by your grace and through your spirit to, to help us, Lord, to, to continually seek the things above. Pursue the things of Christ and to set our minds, let them rest on the things of Christ and the things that your word says. Lord, this world in which we live, we're so used to it. We're so used to it is so much a part of our being as the fallen creatures that we are. Help us to disengage from these things in our mind and our heart and always be seeking the things above, this glorious joy that we have set before us in the picture of Revelation, this new heaven, new earth, new city, a new communion. Lord, what a, what a privileged people we are. Forgive us for not anticipating these things as we ought. And cause us by your spirit to recount them in every moment of difficulty, every time, even where the joys of this life are joys and they're good joys from you. Yet let that not settle us here, Lord. Help it to be an anticipation of the great joy to come in the glories of heaven. And we sing your praise today as we will sing unto all eternity because of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life. Thank you.
for saving us from sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.